Hey everybody, this is Brent Ingersoll and you are listening to the Speaking Of Podcast. I am really excited about today because I'm going to introduce you to one of my friends, a guy I met a few years ago in a pastor's cohort. Uh, A few of us from Canada and a handful from the United States uh, met in San Diego at a beach house and just talked ministry and we became friends. And a friend of mine named John S. Dickerson, he is an author that I'm going to introduce to you today on the podcast. This guy is so smart and so brilliant and yet he is one of the most humble down-to-earth guys I know and I am really excited for you to get to meet John and to hear what he has to say. John is a award-winning journalist. He was a journalist uh, and reporter before he became a pastor. He's received all kinds of awards. He's been published in USA Today, New York Times, and he's written a handful of books. And he pastors at a church called Connection Point Christian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. John is an incredible guy, and I'm really excited for you to meet him today. We talk all about life. We talk about ministry, the church, apologetics, his books. It's, It's just a cool conversation, and you don't have to be a pastor to enjoy this. Anybody who loves Jesus and is interested in what God might be doing in the world today, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So here it is, my conversation with John Dickerson. John, the last time we were together, uh, Donald Trump was the president and uh, Kobe Bryant was alive and uh, the Taliban weren't in charge of Afghanistan. And there's a whole list of things, uh, man, 2019, the fall of 2019, last time we spent time together and, uh, a couple things have changed since then. It's yeah. What a, what a wild world, man. It's <laughs> to say the least. And I don't know if, you know, we were together in San Diego. I don't know if any of us would have imagined, you know, almost two years later, uh, the, just the, the whirlwind that has been the last 18 months anyway. So it's crazy. And we haven't really had a chance to even talk at all in that time. Although we'll be seeing each other soon. I think, um, you know, I wanted to know how you're doing and you know, what on a personal level, if you were to zoom out and look at the last 18 months, like what has God been saying to, to John Dickerson and what's that, what's your journey been on a personal level over the last year and a half or more? Yeah. Great question. You know, it's, um, it's a lot of claiming that promise that Jesus gave when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, um, you you know, it's interesting. God, um, sometimes allows us to, I don't want to say see the future, but um, he prepares us. And we know this from scripture, he would have prophets and I don't, I don't claim to be a prophet, but you think of Jeremiah, uh, saying, you know, more or less, here's this difficult season that's going to come. And when I walked away from my journalism career, which is a little over 10 years ago now and became a pastor, um, God called me to a church of 40 people. I'd never been a pastor before. And I just started, um, teaching the word of God and, and uh, that church started to grow. And then I just, I had this culture shift because I was working in a mainstream newsroom in a large metropolitan city, Phoenix in Arizona's, you know, about between three and 4 million people in the larger metro area. And the newspaper I was at is, you know, politically what people call very liberal. And I, I was definitely the only kind of like follower of Jesus there. Hmm. And I went from that environment straight into, um, 
pastoring in an American church. Hmm. Uh, and actually that church was in a retirement community. So uh, a very traditional demographic. And as I got to know other pastors, um, and this would be a, a little different level than you're at, probably smaller churches, but um, I just had this culture shift of like, wow, you know, my love for Jesus and God's word hasn't changed at all. But do some of these Christian leaders understand how the world is changing around us? Um, and so that actually led into a research project, which then um, my literary agent, because I was already a professional writer before I was a pastor, um, said, hey, you know, let's make this into a book. And so um, that was the first book that I wrote. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. Mm -hmm. It's like, talk about a nerd title for a book. Like, who else calls their book The Great Evangelical Recession? It's awesome, recession? Man. It's, it's so good. <laughs> it was a play on words at the time mm -hmm. because um, we had just come out of the Great Financial Recession, right. if you remember the housing crisis. Yep. And the Great Financial Recession, 99% uh, of people are like, oh, I didn't see this coming. But there were some prophets, if you will, not in right. the spiritual sense, but in the economic sense. A guy named Nouriel Rabini, who's an economics professor in New York, who had more or less written a whole paper and done a bunch of speeches saying um, there's a bubble in the housing market and this whole thing's going to collapse. And as I gathered the research, I kind of pulled out my old investigative reporting tools that I used when I was a journalist. Um, about the state of the church in North America, the facts led me to the conclusion that one, it's smaller than we think it is, especially for Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, Americans can easily have this sense of like, well, everyone's a Christian. I, I think that's right. past now, but 10 years ago, people still yep. thought that way. Um, smaller than we think. Um, generationally, we're losing so many of our own young people. And then as a result, financially, most of our income or revenue to do ministry in the model that we have is dependent on people who are nearing the finish line of their time mm -hmm. on earth. One of the other trends that was in the sociology data, and this is remarkable in a sense that that book was published in 2013, I think I'm looking at the front of it here, 2013 or 14 is that there would be great political division within churches. So this was pre-Trump or masks or anything, but there's a whole chapter. Yeah. 2013 is the copyright. Wow. So the research was done in 2011. So full 10 years ago, the book was written in 2012 and then published in 2013. So a full 10 years ago, based really off of Pew research data about, you know, what are the beliefs of Americans who identify as Christians about different moral issues and other things. So there's a whole chapter in that book, Great Evangelical Recession, about how the church is smaller than we think. It's shrinking. It's headed toward financial difficulty and it's fractured. And then the last trend um, in the book, I call it hated, but it's essentially this reality that culture around us is rapidly um, moving in a way that is not necessarily favorable to Christians. Um, and it's not, it, it's not a sky is falling or chicken little kind of thing, but it's essentially a lot of the rights to freedom and the right to gather, right to worship, mm -hmm. uh, our assumption that what we do is tax deductible, right. that a lot of those things have expiration dates on them at some point in the future based on the direction of society. So, um, so that, that was the first book. Yeah. There, this is my copy that I've used for countless wow. radio interviews. Yep. <laughs> I have all these little cheat sheet notes in it. 
But um, essentially, the first six chapters go through um, those those difficulties. You know, so inflate. Oh, is that backwards? No, no, that's okay. it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So inflated, hated, dividing, bankrupt, bleeding, uh, and and sputtering. And then the last six chapters are the positive part, where I was a very young pastor at the time. I think I was twenty eight or twenty nine when I was writing this, and so. Um, essentially I knew I don't have the solution to these problems, Mm -hmm. but I always believe the word of God has the solution. You know, Peter wrote in Christ, we have everything necessary for life and godliness. And that includes the body of believers, um, the spirit of God within us and the word of God to lead us. And so the last six chapters of that book really look problem by problem through those six different trends that at that time were predictive and, and said, um, how would the word of God lead us to, to respond to these things? And so a uh, little bit of personal trivia, just because this is, you said this is more of kind of um, your, your friends and, and followers. And yeah. um, I think I, I can say it here. When the book came out, there, there, were, there was one national kind of level uh, in the American church Christian who more or less came out saying, you know, John's a fear monger. He's like trying to... Yeah. He's trying to sell books by scaring everybody. Um, that guy is now actually a very good friend, and I won't say who it is, but he's well known. But um, he's had to change jobs two or three times because the organizations he's worked for no longer exist, or those departments no longer exist. Right. Uh, e- even to the tune of um, that organization, which had a thousand missionaries around the world, um, having to say we can't afford to support our missionaries anymore. We right. have to shut that part down. And so, um, it, sadly, actually the very front of that book says, I hope I'm wrong about all of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, but the bottom line is that, um, you know, I'm not a prophet by any means, but from my time in journalism, what I like to do is, is gather the data and through Pew Research Center. Um, and there's about a half dozen other Barna's pretty good as well. Um, we, there's a ton of data out there and you can kind of piece it together and get a little bit of a picture of where things mm-hmm. are going. And so in that sense, because you were asking me about this kind of crazy last couple of years, um, in that sense, um, it's almost like if you know a prophecy that says like things are going to be difficult for the church in America, mm-hmm. but you don't know the details and then it plays out and it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is what that what that looks like. So anyhow, I'm rambling on and on, but that's the, that's the first, that's the first one of the five and a little bit of my nerdiness. Well, and I think it's so, so you're for your, and I think every pastor and even Christian, like just, you don't have to be a pastor even to be processing this. Cause like, you know, what you were seeing is sort of seeing like the, the formation of storm clouds on the horizon, you know, a decade ago. And, you know, you know, Christian leaders have been sort of, as, as the last even five years have kind of been progressing, sort of seeing that more and more. And then the last two years has just completely brought every, all of this to the forefront. You know, what, what, I guess on a personal level, like I'll, I'll describe my journey, you know, and then these are things that we've been talking about, you know, even in our own uh, leadership, even before the pandemic about, you know, yeah. like culture's changing. We live in a post-Christian society. It's even, I mean, Canada is probably 10 years down the road from America yeah. in, in yeah. you know, secularism and progressivism and all that stuff. 
And, you know, so this is stuff we've been talking about, but it's almost like the last two years, though, like Kristen and Christendom, like breathed its last gasp, you know, and like, I don't know if you've ever been around or had a loved one that's died from cancer, but there's always that like last week or two where it almost, they almost give the appearance that they're like rebounding. Oh, they, they ate a meal today and you, you know, it stirs your hope up. And then when they finally do pass, it's like that reality. And I think, I mean, I described the first like eight months of this pandemic of like just trying so hard to resurrect uh, a model of church and an approach to church that clearly, you know, and I think it's the Lord doing it. I don't think it, I don't think it's, you know, the enemy or entropy or like, I think it's, I think it's God allowing this to happen to refine the church, but there was still like this grieving almost sense of loss that I, I had, I've, I've gone through, you know, and I'm just now even, at the place where in a more healthy grounded way I'm, I'm engaging the future and asking questions about formation and, and what does God want to do in my own life and in the body of Christ and all that. What's that been like for you? Because it's one thing to see it coming. It's another thing to actually go through it, you know, and like, yeah. how's, how's that been for you? And yeah, as a pastor, as a person, all that. Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, would agree with you so much that it really stretches our faith because we, um, we, most of us who are followers of Jesus, we come to know Christ in a certain model um, of what church looks right. like and feels like. And so then we make the assumption that that's kind of what church is, is that particular model. The beautiful thing about the true body of Christ, the way God set it up, is it's incredibly resilient mm -hmm. throughout the last 2000 years. If you look back, you know, to, from churches meeting in the catacombs underneath cities to churches meeting in giant cathedrals and controlling the entire economy to Christians, you know, fleeing Europe on wooden ships to yep. find religious liberty. Um, and so it, it goes through these human, uh, these different external shells by human measures that that look differently and i think that's the real test for our faith is um being willing to let go of anything that's that's not necessary mm -hmm. um but also having clarity about what are the essentials that we do that we do hold on to those because that, that's the dangerous thing about a kind of deconstruction yeah. is you have to make sure if you deconstruct that you don't lose you know the actual essence of whatever you're you're deconstructing. And that's probably the challenge for a lot of us in our, in our generation is yeah. how do we move forward as well as I think there's a simultaneous challenge um, practically for you and me being leaders of larger churches um, that uh, uh, here's a paradigm. It's not spiritual that I often use. I think of JC Penney, Sears and Kmart. That's a model. Yep. It's actually very similar to a mega church model. You've mm -hmm. got a big building and the customers come into the building yep. and that's the model. And so that model has clearly been on its way out. Mm -hmm. Now there were people who saw it ahead of time 20 years ago or earlier, like Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. um, and then about 10 years after Jeff Bezos, more people started to see it, but you know, as recently as the early two thousands to be the, you know, uh, C, uh, Sears and Kmart and JCPenney, they were still a big deal and yeah. massive revenue and all this real estate. And um, now it's become clear, like, okay, that model's on, it, as you said, on its last breath. Yeah. And so I, I think what we see in, I think what our challenge is, 
uh, bear with me here, is yeah. that if you were to look at a map of Canada and the United States, I think it varies by region where that model, if you will, and the model I'm referring to is kind of the big weekend service yeah. with the big production in a really nice facility, excellent kids area and kids ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think it varies geographically how many years are left for that model. Yep. And I don't know the future, so I don't know, you know, but that's something that I pray through. I'm in Indiana it's still most of the kids being raised here are would say I'm being raised Christian. However, um, a lot of them, once they go to college, that changes. Right. And so we're like you mentioned, the U.S. is probably 10 years behind Canada on sort of the cultural trajectory. Mm-hmm. Indiana is probably another 10 years behind that. However, it's still going in the same direction. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, I pray for wisdom. Uh, we are right now a very large church, but we only have one physical site. And so a lot of the churches we look up to have multiple sites. Mm -hmm. And so that's something as we pray through that is like, is that model, uh, especially when the sites are, they're buying real estate. I mean, it's like, it's five to 10 million per site. Is that model like getting into being the next Sears or Kmart in the early 2000s? Um, Or are we in a market, if you will, in a region where that model will continue to work more than 10 years? Um, I don't know the answers to these things, but I think it's a unique time in history to to follow Jesus through. Don't you feel the challenge, too? Because I feel this here in our context, too. And like in in eastern Canada, there are no, you know, our church would be the largest church. And even our largest site, you know, would have nowhere near to the foot traffic of what your guys is like we you know, people around here would call like our main campus, like a a mega church, but it's not, I mean, it's compared to real massive church buildings. So the thing I'm struggling with though. So like, even in our context is like, you know, knowing, knowing what are the things that are like, and and this will lead in probably some discussion about your latest book even, but like, you know, what are things to, to hold, you know, in a closed fist and what are things to like hold an open hand that's like, this is just a tool that God used to accomplish what he's really after in that, in that given season. And for me, and I think for a lot of like maybe uh entrepreneurial or apostolic leaders, I'm such an all or nothing person. And I, you know, so like I, I can easily run down the, you know, a, a form of deconstructionalism almost that's not maybe ideological or theological, but it's more uh, like as far as the the philosophy behind how we do what we do. And I'm, I'm just struggling between, you know, like finding those lines, like, okay, maybe, maybe we're not going to have massive churches, but does, does that mean that like massive buildings, but does that mean that there's, there's no place for, you know, uh, a, a crowd of people. Cause when I read revelation seven, you know, it looks like multitudes are a thing for Christians. Like it looks like large gatherings are a thing. Like, so yeah. I feel like that's an eternal vision. And I think the thing I've been struggling with is just like determining what things we actually need to fight to hold on to versus what things yeah. we just need to be comfortable letting go of, you know, have you, yeah. have you been wrestling through any of that? Oh, a hundred percent. And that's actually part of my journey before I became a pastor, when I was working as a investigative reporter and journalist, um, God used a really large church in Phoenix, uh, called Scottsdale Bible church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he used that in my life in a big way. And then I got involved in a small group and I ended up kind of leading the small group. And that's where, um, God revealed that, that 
teaching was one of my spiritual gifts that he's entrusted to me. And by the way, everyone listening to this, you've got a spiritual gift too. Mm -hmm. And it matters just as much as Brent's gifts are mine. And you will be the most fulfilled in life when you find what God has gifted you to do in the body of Christ and you do it with all your might. It's the most fulfilling thing next to knowing Jesus as your savior. And as he revealed to me that teaching was mine, I had a season where I was attending this large mega church and I was reading the new Testament and I started going to seminary and I thought, why do we have these huge buildings and these huge budgets, you know, um, because our groups were multiplying, you know, right. we'd have, we'd start with 12 in a group and it would grow to 20 and then it would grow to 40. And then I'd send off the 30 of them into two new groups and I'd start over with 12 again. And, and God kept doing that at that time. I didn't have a family or any other responsibilities other than my job. And I thought, oh, man, I'm just going to do this for the rest of my life. We'll start like a guerrilla warfare grassroots kind of church movement right. where there's no budget, there's no board, there's no building. I mean, I was a little revolutionary because I was, you know, early 20s and I thought I had it all figured out. So you're the only one uh, in I, that phase that, that <laughs> is like that. But I remember I remember thinking that. And then the irony is that God called me. I don't want to say in the belly of the beast, but he called me right <laughs> into the American megachurch model. Mm-hmm. You know, where now I'm the lead pastor of a church with, I think, 160,000 square foot facility and this massive footprint um, real estate wise. And and what I've realized in it is a little bit of humility that this that model really does work. And at the yeah. end of the day, uh, you know, Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll know them. I think fruit is the goal, changed lives. Yes. Uh, are we leading people to Jesus? Are we then training those people to follow Jesus and multiply? And that that can be done in certain cities and regions and areas still with a large building, Mm -hmm. it's still working in, in Indiana. Um, however, it can also be done without the building. So, um, to your question of essentially what are the essentials? What are the things that we hold with a closed fist and what are the things we let go of? Again, we always look to the word of God to answer those. And I, I would put it into two categories essential beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a book I've written about that recently and then essential practices. Right. And the reason I say beliefs and practices is that if if I were to synthesize Jesus teachings with the disciples over and over again, he says, believe and follow, believe and follow. And so I believe those are like the right foot and the left foot of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Like you have to believe what Jesus says. And that does mean there are a set of facts that are either right or wrong. And then you have to follow with the other foot. And if you're only following, but you're not growing in your understanding of God's word, you're kind of like a a one-footed Christian hopping along. And we meet those other Christians who are one-footed. We're like, they've gone to seminary and they know a whole bunch of Greek words, Mm -hmm. but somewhere along the way they stopped obeying, which is following, and they've become kind of deformed spiritually. So um, to me, I would put what are the things we hold with that we won't let go of into those two categories. What do we believe that mm. no matter how we deconstruct or how culture changes, these things are essential. If we lose these, we're no longer followers of Jesus. Yeah. And then what do we do that is um, similarly essential mm. for what we do? Um, I tend to look to at the end of acts two, which a lot of pastors do, yeah. you know, that the, the believers, um, you can help fill yeah. some of these they in, met, but you they know, met together they were, daily yeah. broke bread, worship in the temple. Yeah. yeah two acts two forty six, two forty eight. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I think we get the practices there. And what's yeah. great about that is they, um, 
they met in the temple. So they did have that larger corporate gathering, but they didn't own the temple. Right. Um, And that temple would get destroyed eventually. So they, it looks like in early church history, they kind of creatively found whether it was the catacombs or an open field or the temple. So I think there's a a place for the church, Mm -hmm. um, uh, having large gatherings without having the real estate. Now, however, it sure is convenient, you know, when we're in a place culturally where we can do it with freedom and we can financially afford it, I think it's actually a great advantage. hundred percent. Yeah. It's undeniable. I mean, we've got, uh, four sites, two of which are like, um, you know, mobile and two that are in permanent locations. And there's the advantages, of having having real estate is just it's it's not in question, but it's uh, it's definitely a time though to be sifting through, you know what what things what things are, is God like really changing to to kind of give shape. And I do think one of the things that the last two years for me has like it's exposed uh, in myself and in the church like a level of. Uh, barrenness and immaturity mm. that I didn't know was there mm. until the tide went out kind of thing. And, you know, even in my own life, like once, you know, I, I had to go through a few months of not being in front of people in the same way mm. and feeling the energy of a room and getting to pray mm. with people up front and like enjoying the glory of those environments before God really started to speak to me and say, you know, he re- that it revealed to me that a lot of what I thought was intimacy, intimacy with God was actually just adrenaline. And it was like, mm. it was just like based off this economy of being in places where God was up to something, but it had little to do with my intimate dialogue with him. And until mm. that was all kind of stripped away, I, I didn't review, I didn't see that. And I think there's a similar thing going on in the church right now too, where it's like the Lord is letting us see, you know, the, the depth of, of who we actually are and, you know, on the one hand, I and you probably could say the same thing about your church. I, I've been both encouraged and discouraged at what this last, you know, eighteen mm. months has revealed about the church. I've seen some very beautiful expressions of what it means to be a Christian and to be a Christian community. I've seen maturity and humility in a lot of our people, but mm. I've also seen a lot of people just fall away you know, get completely cut out at the knees and they clearly weren't grounded in something that could, mm-hmm. could hold up to the, yeah. the, the challenge of the last couple of years. And I, I think that's the big challenge that we're facing right now, even as we kind of re-engineer and re-engage even and figure yeah. out which things to fire up and which things to let go of entirely. But you kind of saw though, you know, with your last book, when did you, the, this book, Jesus loves me is your latest. And yeah. Did you write this during the, during the pandemic? I wrote this, um, I, I wrote this probably. Yes. <laughs> Looking at that. <laughs> yeah. It came out this year, 2021. Yeah. I, this, this is the, my only book that started as a sermon series. Okay. Um, but the reason it, the reason I did the sermon series was, um, so evangelical recession, uh, and then there's another book, Hope of Nations, which is also a, a little bit kind of um, like difficult, a little bit prophetic in nature. <laughs> uh, but but from the research that I did for all of those came this clarity 
that a lot of uh, uh, Christians in North America can, can don't just, actually know what know what they believe. I just need to say though, before, hold yeah. your thought. You're the nicest, most difficult person I've ever <laughs> met. So just just so you know, <laughs> you, you say the toughest things in the most nice, like kind way. So it makes it it's like putting some sugar around a tough pill to swallow. Uh, well, that's very great, you know, there's a stere- there's a stereotype of Canadians in 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 America that they're all very, very nice. And, um, so in that sense, I feel like I'm in good, in good company. I try to be a very kind person. You are, man. (laughs) Yeah, you are. I was saying to Ron, my, the guy who helps run our podcast here, like John, John has the gift of being the smartest guy in the room and making nobody feel dumb. So you're, you're just, you're one of a kind man. So anyway, sorry to totally interrupt Uh, and hijack your thought, but you know, hope of nations, (laughs) another, another tough one. No, and the reason I mentioned Hope of Nations was that the um, the research in both of those books led me to the conclusion that the majority of quote Christians in North America don't know the essential Christian beliefs. Right. Uh, for example, there's a, a pretty well well tr- well uh, cited study of people who claim to be quote born again. So. Barna and some of the others use that, you know, cause it's like two thirds of Americans still say they're Christian. Mm-hmm. So, but how many of them really have um, made a commitment to follow Jesus? So they boil it down to quote born again, which got it down to about 40% of Americans. Um, and this is probably in the U S and then, um, then they asked that 40% who said I'm born again. I believe the Bible's God's word. Um, are Jesus and Allah the same God? And like half of them said, yeah, we think Jesus and Allah are the same God. So that lets you know, you know, half of the people who consider themselves born again, they either don't have a clear understanding of Islam or they don't have a clear understanding of Christianity. And so a a lot of data points like that that led me to the conclusion, um, how many people who are attending our larger churches, especially where I've been called to serve, actually know the essential Christian beliefs? Um, cause we kind of said there's essential practices that follow and there's essential be- beliefs, believe, believe and follow. So the practices, um, we could have people there attending the weekend service. Maybe they're even in a small group. Um, but is what they believe aligned with Jesus and how do we then make sure they know the essential beliefs without it becoming this Christianese seminary level, right. you have to be highly intellectual you have to kind of, you know, be a certain Enneagram type or a certain personality type. And if you can say all these words like the gospel and say all these things, then you're, a, we don't want to go down that path. Right. But how do we make sure that the people in our um, seats and in our rooms who say I'm a follower of Jesus actually know what they believe? And so that was a challenge that I took. Um, I just took it as a challenge for a sermon series to say, I want everyone in my ministry if they were seated in a room by themselves, you know, almost like the, the interrogation rooms that hopefully you only see on TV and hopefully you're not in one anytime soon where, you know, the, the police bring you in and you're, you're sitting in there in the interrogation room and they bring you just one piece of paper and a pen. And they say, you know, write down, um, I want to go to heaven. What do I need to believe to go to heaven? What do I need to believe to be a follower of Jesus? And realizing that, there's probably a lot of people who really love the Lord and are genuine followers of Jesus who would maybe struggle to know, like, what do I, what do I write? 
So I really prayed on that for quite a while and God led me, I was doing the research on the kind of theological side and, but the children's song, Jesus loves me, Mm -hmm. this I know for the Bible tells me so that it really captures all of the essential beliefs with the footnote on that being who is Jesus? You know, was he just a good guy? Is he a moral example? Is he a prophet or is he fully God and fully human? who died on the cross for right. the sins of the world. If someone knows that, then, uh, so the, the idea of the book, Jesus Loves Me, and there's a small group study with it, is that by the time you're done reading this book, if you were in that interrogation room and someone handed you the piece of paper, right. you just write out, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Mm. Is that a popular kid's song in Canada? No. It was in America no, for yeah, a long totally. time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. Yeah, I grew up on it, man. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like then as long as you know that song um, and even people who didn't grow up on it can learn it pretty quickly because yeah. it's so short, then you actually know the essentials. And then you just write down those um, those words and then you just go back through and you fill out who is Jesus, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's that's how the book then the book starts by saying, does it actually matter in what academics would call, you know, uh, a postmodern world, a post-truth world yeah. where, you know, non-believers are saying, oh, you know, everyone's truth is the same. Um, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Mm-hmm. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you through, set you free. Mm-hmm. That's John eight thirty one. So Jesus, I mean, he says, if you're going to call yourself a follower of mine, you have to hold to my teaching. Mm-hmm. So I'm not making that up. Some church council's not making that up. Right. That's what Jesus said. Yeah. So that, the book kind of starts with a chapter on that of like, truth matters. Truth is a real thing. I tell a story about when I was uh, taking driver's education. I was 15 years old. What year do you guys get your driver's licenses there in Canada? 16 here. Okay. Okay. So it's the same. I grew up in Michigan, by the way. So I'm I'm geographically pretty close. And I spent... Michigan, Michigan culturally is pretty close to like where, like where I live here in New Brunswick. Like, you know, very similar. On the same, uh, I think, longitudinal line yeah so, right similar climate right. so yeah but a lot I, of the I same spent stuff. many summers in Canada by the way because I haven't had an aunt she's in heaven now who had two cabins on this really remote lake wow um and it was we would cross through the upper peninsula of Michigan we'd cross into Sault Ste. Marie we'd get into Canada and then we would go due east about I don't know six hours and there's this huge lake up there and I, I absolutely love it up there. You guys have such beautiful land. So anyhow, back to driver's ed when I was 16. Yes. Um, I, I remember this time where the guy, uh, it was a teen driver, a student driver, as they say at the steering wheel. And the instructor was uh, to his right. And I was in the back seat. and it was a four way stop on a country road or actually, let me take it back. It was a two way stop. So the one road going through does not have to stop. The road we were on did have to stop. And I'm watching, and there's a school bus. I mean, I can still see it in my mind. Some of the school buses here say Bluebird on the front. Bluebird school bus, yellow. Things going about 60 miles an hour because our rural roads are are 55 miles an hour. So this bus is going like 60. He's coming. I see our stop sign ahead, and I can tell this student driver does not see the stop sign. And there's not a stop sign for the bus. And at the last minute, the instructor in front of me, they have a, a brake, a brake pedal mm-hmm. on the instructor side. And he slams on the brakes. And I think, and I like lock brakes um, 
were, were new, but in existence then. And I remember the tires kind of skidding and we stopped just shy of that bus as it just careened past at 60 miles an hour. And and yeah, it's a little anecdote I write in the book to say like, do you have to stop at a stop sign or not? We could say, well, everyone has their truth. Who am I to say if you're right or wrong? But at the end of the day, you're free to believe what you want to believe. But if you don't believe you need to stop at a stop sign, it's going to have some some consequences for you. (laughs) And the same is true when it comes to God and eternity. And, you know, that's something as our culture moves from a very Christianized culture in its Mm -hmm. traditions and assumptions, rapidly moving into a post-Christian culture. You guys are ahead of us on that. Um, We have to remind people who say I'm a follower of Jesus that this cultural assumption that your truth is your truth, my truth is mine, it doesn't really matter, that's not true according to Jesus. And if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, I mean, he said it. You, If you really hold to my teachings, you are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So that's that's the first part of the book. And then it just goes through, you know, what do we have to believe about Jesus according to Jesus? It's an not incredible, according to, yeah, incredible yeah. book, oh, man. Thanks, and like, man. Uh, it's so, again, it's just, it's just clear and clean and... I think it's so crucial right now. Like I, I think if you talk to most pastors that are paying attention at all, I would say the general consensus I have I have encountered has been like we're in a crisis of orthodoxy mm. in the mm. tr- in the church and like like on on essentials on like creedal yeah. kind of this is always what it means to be Christian. Like and if. Yeah. If, if you don't believe that that's not Christianity, that's some other thing that you've concocted or, you know, and I think, I think like even early in the pandemic, I look back at the, the, the way that God's led a lot of my teaching has been just on like basic, you know, I did a gospel series, like, Hey, what is the gospel? Yeah. Do you actually know what the gospel is? And it, it's interesting to see. I wonder if in this moment we're in, you know, even as the culture is getting, like you said, mo- more post-Christian, and I don't know if Canada, I don't know if the word "ahead" is what I would use. Uh, it's like, yeah, that's probably not. If right it is paradigm. a race, I don't know if we want to be in front. But <laughs> yeah, uh, right. you know, but as like the culture gets more post-Christian and more secular yeah. and more progressive, and which is a whole new form of religion, you know, it's it, yeah. Like the, I mean, the progressive. It's a religion and it has its own priests and it has its own yes. rites and rituals all to itself. You know, I think most pastors who are paying attention at all, not only to themselves, but to their congregation, are seeing the ways in which secular ideology is affecting and infecting, you know, mm-hmm. the hearts and minds of, you know, like you said, well intended believers. Um, yeah. I'm encountering a lot of people. Um, even in my own congregation, I'll hear them say things that are like overtly anti-gospel and they're mm-hmm. saying it in a way that like Jesus would affirm what I'm, what I'm saying here. Right. And there's a lot of secular gospel claims that are again, yeah. anti-gospel. And I think it's such a crucial time right now, you know, before we step even into whatever God's going to do next. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that before we kind of wrap up. Like, I think we've got to kind of plant re re establish our flags on you know again like this is the this is the gospel this is where we're we're you know holding with a closed fist you know truth and love we're not letting go of that and i i 
I think there's going to be a, a sifting of the church over the next decade, and you're going to continue to see Christians who refuse to to kind of hold to just like the the shape of the cross that God has determined, mm. you know, it to be. You're going to just continue to fall off. And I mean, you've seen the trends, and I'm sure you're you're up you're up to speed on all the the actual data and research, but you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the data on a lot of like mainline, like the most progressive churches are the ones in steepest and sharpest decline. And uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's definitely really telling. Um, so it's huge, but I want to, I want like, when we get thinking about, you know, not just like how to address today in the church, but you wrote a book a few years, a couple years ago called Jesus Skeptic, which uh, it's a uh, it's an incredible book. I got it right here, and in it, I mean, it's a it's it's apologetics, but it's a bit different than your typical kind of approach to apologetics. In that you you don't really spend a lot of time in it talking about like a reason for God. It's more like really establishing, or like maybe cutting out some of the common, the more common like hangups people have for for the faith. And I, I wondered if the question I want to ask you about like this, and I would encourage anybody who's not read it or doesn't have it to get it. Like I, you can really see your journalism background mm. in this book. Like, and for those people like me, there's, there's pictures. It's awesome. So <laughs> but, uh, pictures, in that one, pictures. Yeah. no, it's so good. But uh, the question I want to ask you about that, like I'm not to dive into a whole big, like apologetics conversation. We could do that another time, but you know, since you wrote that book, what, what, like, what has changed, you know, in the landscape of the culture that we live in and the, the questions that people are asking and, and, you know, where, where that kind of our faith meets on the unbelief of, or, you know, or the doubts of the, the people that we're trying to reach, like what, what's changed since then in your, in your mind? Yeah. I think the biggest change is the anti-Christian bias. I don't mean that even in a political way. I mean, a lot of the curriculum and just the social current um, has conditioned a lot of our young people to the prejudgment, which is where the word prejudice comes from, that Christians are inherently mm. um, against progress, bad for culture, bad for society. Therefore, you know, against women's rights, against this and that. And, um, and then it becomes just a very bipolar political thing. So, uh, what I think is unique is uh, I have a friend who ministers in in a Muslim context, um, and geographically is in the Muslim world over there in the middle East. And he has hundreds of pastors who are former Muslims. And he's asked me to present the Jesus skeptic material to them because they have this clarity that the Western world has freedom and rights and innovation that the Islamic world does not. And they see very clearly that that results from there being a lot of Christians there. Mm -hmm. We are like fish in the water being told that, um, what water water is, you know, it's like all we've known is water. So when I try to explain that, um, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, every one of the 10 leading universities in the world, which gave birth to all the other universities were all started by Christians to teach the Bible. Um, A lot of young educated people look at me like you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "Um, 
Yeah. Well, here's the, here's their founding charters, yeah. you know? So that's yeah. why Jesus skeptic has so many pictures in it. Yeah. Cause I have to, I felt like I needed to show what I call as a reporter, primary evidence, you know, here is Yale's founding charter. And I've underlined where it says for the propagation of the Protestant Christian religion, you know, here is Harvard's um, first fruits, they called it, which was their pamphlet for fundraising, which was to build a seminary for the teaching of clergy. And, so what Jesus Skeptic does, it is very, it's the only kind of book I know of um, that does this. I call it, this is an academic term, and no one else has used it yet <laughs> that I know of. I call it a social justice apologetic. So your typical apologetics books by yeah. Elise Strobel or a Josh McDowell, and God has used all those in my life in a big way, are truth-based arguments. Mm-hmm. You know, they're arguing that there is a truth. Well, how do we show the significance of Christianity to young people who don't even believe there is a truth? When you've got a 300 page book and the whole thing is, is this true or not? And they're like, I don't care, but they care about human rights and they care about there being hospitals and there being innovation. And Jesus skeptic is probably my biggest passion and burden. I feel like um, it's something I'm, I'm still not able to articulate with the clarity that it, of the burden that I have that mm-hmm. bear with me here. But what I mentioned about universities, this is macro level thinking, but if you were to remove the university as we know it from human history, you would not have modern medicine. Yeah. And this is where we've been born into this. And so we assume it's normal, but human life expectancy as recent as 200 years ago was 45 years. Wow. The fact that we live to our seventies, eighties, nineties is because of modern medicine, which grew out of modern universities. Um, And those universities were across the board founded by Christians. And then those universities gave birth to the early excellent hospitals. So like in the United States, that's the Mayo Clinic, Johns Mm -hmm. Hopkins, founded by a Christian named Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were to remove Christians, not only would you lose the university, you'd lose modern medicine. Then there's a chapter on the, the scientific revolution. And I show in that chapter, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, Johannes Kepler, um, these founders that really unleashed the scientific revolution, which is why we can now harness electricity and have heated homes and have all the advances we enjoy would not exist if that generation of scientists hadn't done the work they did. And I show in Jesus Skeptic their own journal writings that they were devoted followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, they all attended church and Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal in particular, they would write poems about their love for God. I mean, these men were like on fire mm-hmm. for Jesus and they have changed the world. And um, it, it sounds contradictory to young people today, but the same is true of the people who ended open and legalized slavery, which was a norm throughout human history. Ancient Egypt had slaves, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, actually North American native Americans would often enslave each other. And um, sometimes in less brutal ways. And other times, if you look at the Aztec Indians, in very brutal ways. Human sacrifice was a very normal thing Mm -hmm. all around the world. In fact, think about this. When John Harvard, who was a pastor, was donating his personal library to become the first library of Harvard Seminary and College, which would become Harvard University, human sacrifice was still being done in Mexico. Um, And this is how much when, when Christianity 
really settles into a culture and becomes the dominant thinking wavelength. It doesn't mean that there's no evil or injustice to still deal with, Mm -hmm. but it eliminates um, the most common injustices in human history, which are women being treated as property, slavery existing, and there being a, a complete fiefdom where the people in power own all the money and everyone else is essentially either a slave or kind of um, like you saw in Europe before Christianity really took over, uh, just kind of a fiefdom, if you will. And so, uh, and you can just trace it throughout the globe that where Christianity goes those things change. And that's why the wealthiest and most free countries in the world today mm-hmm. are all countries that have been Christian. But and by that, I mean the majority of their population claims to be Christian for more than 300 years. And, and when wow. you get that, so what are the leading countries as far as prosperity and human rights, uh, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, those countries have been Christianized for over a thousand years. You look at the next ones, they were Christianized for hundreds of years. And then you get down to Canada and the United States, they've been Christianized for, you know, a few hundred years or so. And so um, anyhow, it's, it's like, this thing is so big. I have a sense that the material in Jesus skeptic right now, a lot of young people are like, yeah, that just can't be true. But I I think in about, I don't know, somewhere in 20 or 30 years, people will see the fruit of deconstructing culture and not knowing what we're going to reconstruct it about. Now, please don't hear me wrong. When it comes to women's rights and racism, there are still a lot of things that need to to be deconstructed or improved. But if we're going to deconstruct, we have to reconstruct something because we can look around the world and we can see just like what's happening in Afghanistan right now. If there's not good people in power, uh, evil people will will be in power. And so um, powerful people will always make their way to the top and they will use it for their own benefit. And even democracy, (laughs) as we know it, ancient Greek, yes, it had democracy, but very often the ancient Greeks, what they would vote on is, okay, we just brutally overtook this city. Are we going to kill these women or are we going to enslave them let's have a right. vote you know <laughs> so it was democracy yeah. Yeah. but it was nothing like our modern western democracy sure. and if you were to remove the university which was a christian institution you wouldn't even have western democracy and so these things are so big that i yeah. struggle to explain them in a way in a way that um but God, you know, God will, God will use this research in his own way and in his own time. But that's been my, my ambition and goal with Jesus Skeptic was to try to just show, um, hopefully in a humble way, but this is actually the greatest movement for social good in human history, Christianity yeah. is. And even if you don't believe that there's a God, if you want your daughters to grow up and have equal rights to men, you want them to grow up in a city that um, has a church in the middle of it. You don't want them to grow up in a city that has a mosque in the middle of it. And I don't mean that in a political way or in a divisive, and it's certainly not a racist thing, but the reality is cities where the mosque is the center of the city, it's measurable. Um, Those women do not have nearly the same rights. And so um, I think we're in a season where the cultural current is so against this that it almost doesn't consider it. But I believe... um, Somewhere down the line, it's a lot like the for, the post-Soviet countries like mm-hmm. Poland and mm-hmm. uh, Belarus isn't post-Soviet yet, but Poland and the Ukraine and some of those, they're very hungry for this kind of material because yep. they've seen the alternative um, and they see the Western world 
Um, and the sad thing is it's the people in the Western world, yep. us and the people around us who don't understand That's where right. this freedom and prosperity came from. We've so. got, we've got a handful of, uh, I have some friends that are from Ukraine actually. And like even talking to them, you know, like they're, if you were to, if you were to like to talk to them, you'd think, well, they're, they're, they're very conservative, but you know, they don't even fit those kind of binary modes of, you know, North American politics, but like there's such a f- almost flabbergasted, like, what are you people doing? You know, like, frankly, taking the very things that made, you know, North America and Western civilization great and actually yeah. using, weaponizing those things to, to, to tear it apart. Like you're, you're literally yeah. using the yeah. tools that this whole, this whole thing built to saw the very limb off that you're sitting on. It's, yes. it's really bizarre to see happen. And, yes. and you see, I think what happens, though, I think you make such a great case for it in, in Jesus Skeptic. And, uh, you know, have you read, have you read uh, Tim Keller's How to Reach the West Again? His little, his little I, book? I need to. Dude. I, oh, I mean, he's, it's, it's a different approach, but he's, he's coming at the same, the same conversation as you are in Jesus Skeptic. And that is like, one of the things he says is like for the, for the church to be effective in evangelism now, you know, 30 years ago, we had to answer people's questions. They were asking, everyone had a deistic worldview. They were trying to figure out like, where's God? How do I fit in this picture? And all you had to do was answer those questions and connect the dots to Jesus. Now we have to question people's answers and how people have already basically establish things that aren't actually grounded in any actual facts or, or reality. And so then that's what you're doing in Jesus skeptic is like, Oh, Hey, pump the brakes. You know, you're actually benefiting. The fact that you can have, you're a woman and you can have a vote is, is the fruit of centuries of Christian seed that has, you know, influenced things in such a way that's allowed that freedom and no, is it, it's not perfect, but you know, the, the benefits that you and I get to experience every day living in the West is largely due to people who knew Jesus. And man, you you take Jesus out of it and all of a sudden, you know, things over time begin to become mechanized and you, you know, it's just interesting. You think about like the argument about church and state, you know, in my lifetime, I grew up thinking that you know, the separation of church and state was to keep, you know, the, 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 the church and the state, like originally it was set up to keep the state like out of the church. And now, you know, the arguments inverted to where it's, you know, we're trying to keep, we got to keep the church out of the, out of the state, you know, and it's, it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting thing. What happens when like the heart for Christ is no longer in uh, these institutions, whether it's, you know, like you take those, yeah. those very institutions you're talking about, Harvard, Oxford, basically the whole Ivy league. I mean, they're the yeah. most progressive, uh, you know, leaders in that kind of, that kind of ideology now, which is just really, it's really ironic, man. You take the, not ironic, it's tragic. Um, yeah. but man, it's uh it's a, it's a great book and I would encourage, I would encourage anybody. I'm, I'm just glad people could, jump on today with you, John, like some of the people here in Eastern Canada and get to get to hear from you and get to know you a little bit. Uh, it's just, you're, you're a real blessing, man. And these books I think are, you're, uh, you see things before they happen and it's, you're, you're a gift to people like me that can, uh, 
grab these resources and put language to things that you're they're thinking about, but maybe struggling to get the words. It's nice to know that you're still struggling to get the words too. Yeah, I am, man. I am. Dude, it's been an honor to hang out. And yeah. Thank you. Thank you to those of you who've been part of the conversation and uh, feel free. If any of you want to follow me on social media, it's just John S Dickerson, J O H N S as in Sam Dickerson uh, on the various platforms. And, and um, yeah, especially if, if any of this resonated with you, I would encourage you to pick up the, any of those books. Uh, there's a few others, there's others that we haven't mentioned yet, but are that we, we don't have time to mention today, but I just encourage you. That's, that's my burden and passion as I've written these is um, I've known with each of the books that God has called me to write, they're not going to be New York times bestsellers, but they're written for thinking Christians and for Christians who are leaders, whether that's leading a small group or leading on the board of a Christian school or leading in a local church. And uh, that's, that's my uh, calling from God is to equip you mm. to kind of understand the times and just have more tools. Uh, so that's the heart in these. And that would be my prayer is anyone who, who picks them up that it just helps you follow Jesus better. It's awesome, man. Thanks so much for taking the time today, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Keep up the great work. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I couldn't encourage you more to go out and grab some of John Dickerson's books. Check him out online. He's an incredible preacher and communicator. And he didn't ask me or pay me to push his content on you. I just believe in it. I think you'll really benefit from checking out any of his books. You can find him online, and I encourage you to do so. We'll see you next time.